Skywatchers, thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Bryony, and we're going to highlight what to look out for in the sky in November in this Cosmic Diary. Now, we'd like to give a special mention and our thanks to Eliza Rogers, one of our work experience students this summer, who helped put the astronomical highlights in this Cosmic Diary together for us. So, when looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on to the red night vision mode. It's November and although it's cold with average temperatures of around seven degrees Celsius, the long and dark nights make it perfect for stargazing with the sun rising no earlier than about 7am and setting no later than about 4.30pm from here in London. And also there are plenty of opportunities to observe meteor showers, planets and the moon throughout the month. Mercury's time on the astronomical stage comes to a peak on the 10th when it reaches its greatest western elongation. What this means is that the angle between the Sun and Mercury is at its greatest. So on the 10th, you will have the longest gap between Mercury rising and the Sun rising, making it the best time to view the planet. It will be visible for just a short time before sunrise, lying low on the eastern horizon in the constellation of Virgo, not all that far from Venus. Due to its proximity to the Sun, it won't be easy to spot, but it is definitely worth a look. You should also take care to not look directly at the sun with your eyes or through binoculars or a telescope, as the intense sunlight can cause damage, which does include blindness. Now in other planetary news, Saturn will be in conjunction with the moon on the 19th of November, and Jupiter will appear close by too. This means that Saturn and the moon will share the same right ascension in the sky. If you have a telescope, look for Saturn's icy rings. These can be seen even through a small telescope. Also, see if you can make out Jupiter's great red spot. It's a gigantic storm twice the size of the Earth in its southern hemisphere. Jupiter's Galilean moons are also a great target. There's Io, the volcanic sulfur moon, Europa, the icy moon, which may hold the potential for life, Ganymede, the largest moon in the solar system, and even Callisto with its Valhalla crater. Going back a bit, on the night of the 11th and into the early morning of the 12th, the northern Taurus meteor shower will reach its peak. The best time to spot them is just after midnight, and although with an average of five meteors an hour, you're probably looking at a long night of observing, the Taurids are well known for having a high percentage of fireballs, or exceptionally bright meteors. Taurus can be found easily due to Aldebaran, the big red star that represents the bull's eye. Look high in the southern sky to find the radiant in the constellation of Taurus. The Taurids are actually two meteor showers, the northern and the southern Taurids, which augment each other. So they're two showers that just happen to overlap in a similar part of the sky. Both showers are thought to originate from the debris of Comet Encke, and it's this debris plowing through the Earth's atmosphere that produces the meteors. Another meteor shower occurring in this chilly month is the Leonids meteor shower, which peaks on the night of the 16th and into the early morning of the 17th of November. In the hours before sunrise, look to the radiant in the constellation of Leo in the southeastern sky and scan the skies with your eyes to spot the meteors. 
This meteor shower outdoes the Taurids with a slightly greater rate of 15 meteors per hour, but neither of these showers are the strongest of the year. So to increase your chances of spotting a meteor, move away from light polluted areas and cities. And if you live in a big city, then heading off to a field or on a camping trip in a dark sky area would decrease the light pollution and so increase your chances of being able to spot the meteors. Talking of dark skies, November the 15th provides the darkest sky this month, as this is when the new moon occurs. This makes it a great time to view deep sky objects. So if you have a telescope or even a pair of binoculars, it's time to look at some old favourites. The famous constellation, my personal favourite, of the Orion the Hunter is one of the easiest to spot because of the three bright stars that make up his belt. Orion holds a couple of very interesting astronomical objects. The first is Betelgeuse, well known for its blood red appearance. Betelgeuse, or Betelgeuse, depending on how you pronounce it, is a red supergiant star that is set to go supernova soon. Well, soon astronomically speaking, that is. Another well-known star is Rigel, which is at Orion's knee. Rigel is a hot blue-white supergiant star and is in fact the seventh brightest star in the heavens. For those with a telescope, just below Orion's belt is the Orion Nebula, a nursery for newly formed stars. If you trace a line from Betelgeuse through Orion's head across the night sky, you get to Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus. And if you keep going, you should come across a small cluster of stars that look like a miniature version of the plough. If you spot them, you will have found the Pleiades. It's also known as the Seven Sisters, as you can make out seven stars thereabouts with the naked eye. But this star cluster, in fact, holds several thousand stars in total. Finally, for the avid moon observers, the month ends with a bright full moon on the 30th, making this a perfect time to observe the lunar surface and look out for its two greatest craters, the Copernicus crater and the Tycho crater. Craters on the moon form from space rocks crashing into the moon's surface, and the range of space debris impacting with the moon has resulted in many different sized craters. The Copernicus crater is visible using binoculars and is located slightly northwest of the center of the moon's near side, the side that we see from the Earth. Tycho, though, is the most prominent crater on the southern side of the moon. It is about 108 million years old, which is actually relatively young compared to the Copernicus crater that likely formed 800 million years ago. November's full moon is often known as the beaver full moon. It comes from the North Americans who noticed that beavers would be active in building their winter dams at this time of the year, working at night under the light of the full moon. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You might also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. So welcome back to the cosmic news part of the podcast. This is the part of the podcast where for the past few months, I have been picking a new story that has broken in the past month and delving into it a bit more. But actually this month I have got a co-host with me. I've got Bryony, another one of the astronomers at the Royal Observatory Greenwich. Hi Bryony. Hey Dara and hello everyone who is listening. Uh, how, how are you today, Dara? Yeah. I should also say actually, 
and I'm gonna, this is gonna be what's gonna make it in. Happy birthday, Dara. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Although when listeners listen to this, it may not be my birthday on the actual day, but thank but you very I, much. I think everyone should know that Dara is making a sacrifice and recording this on her birthday and you should all wish her happy birthday. Thanks, Bryony. <laughs> well, now that we've got Bryony with us, we can actually revert to one of our old styles of our Look Up podcast in that we each choose a new story to uncover from the past month. And our poll this month will be you choosing the story that you're most interested in. So the competition is on, Bryony. Um, and I think I found a pretty good story for this month. So I'm going to kick it off. Okay, um, right. And you've probably heard about this st uh, story in the last couple of days from actually our recording point. Um, one of the biggest questions about our solar system is how did it form? And, you know, what were the conditions like four and a half billion years ago when it did? The problem is that things have changed, right, between when the solar system yeah. formed and where we are now. So let's take the Earth, for example. We've had volcanic eruptions. They've covered up old surfaces. We've also had things like wind and water erosion, which have changed mm -hmm. the landscapes of the Earth, right? So if we want to see what the Earth was like four and a half billion years ago, we can't just look at it now and say, hey, it was like that. And the same goes for lots of things in our solar system. The way they are now isn't necessarily uh, the way they were in the early solar system. So no humans were around four and a half billion years ago. No one has invented a time machine. So traveling back to there isn't a possibility right now. Not yet. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, how can we probe what the early solar system was like? Do you have any clues, Bryony? Well, I mean, I have heard that sometimes moons are pretty good places to look uh, at conditions of the early solar system, particularly our moon. Uh, I know that there are some, some moons, uh, but I know that Callisto, that has the oldest surface on the solar system because uh, it is one of the oldest, sort of oldest moons, it's very undisturbed. Boring from a, a geological point of view in that sense, but uh, yeah, it means it's preserved a lot of, uh, a lot of that stuff. So am I, how, how warm am I? Well, you actually, you kind of touched on something that I wanted to, and this idea that we think of like things like the sun and the planets as these really cool and amazing things to study. And we might consider perhaps some of the moons in our solar system, but yeah. especially space rocks to be the boring leftover bits from the formation of our solar system. And actually you alluded to this idea that um, we have different things in our solar system. Our sun was the first to form from this huge cloud, this huge nebula, and then from the material left over, we got things like planets and then moons. But actually, there's an awful lot of just leftover bits, which we call space rocks. And actually, mm -hmm. it's those space rocks, which are perhaps considered mundane by some, but that are likely to be the kind of key to solving that mystery of the early solar system. Um, like time capsules that have not undergone any changes throughout their history, these space rocks are pretty much exactly the same as they were when they formed. Can you now guess the new story that uh, I've picked for this month? Well, I have heard, uh, I have heard tell of some exciting news from NASA about their little, um, I can't remember what the, uh, what the probe is called, Osiris Rex, actually, is it? Spot on, really. Yeah, it has uh, re recently uh, done a little sort of tap away from um, an asteroid. Um, what was the asteroid's name again? So it's called uh, Asteroid Bennu, um, and actually okay. that's, 
the, the story uh, for this month. It focuses on a, a current mission to an asteroid, and it is NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. Um, and it's a study of an asteroid, but also a sample return mission. It is one of the big things in space, isn't it, that we want to not only just view things, but also be able to touch them. And the only ways we can do that is to send a spacecraft out, out to space to do that for us but more likely we kind of want to bring it back but these are really challenging things to do so it's a question we often get in you know in the planetarium people will be you know why can't we you know, bring bring rocks back from mars why can't we do this and it's like well you need to have the fuel to get there and get back and that's a lot of extra fuel you're carrying around which means you need even more fuel which sort of just snowballs and uh, ends up being sort of a bit of an intractable problem but uh, hopefully Hopefully we're on our way to solving it. We can at least do it for small scale. Uh, hopefully as this mission will prove. Absolutely. Um, and there actually have been many kind of missions to comets and asteroids before, but most of them have been flyby missions because unlike planets and moons, asteroids and comets are a lot smaller. Now, if you're trying to target a space rock out in space that's not making its own light, that's not reflecting so much of its own light, that is perhaps only a few tens of kilometers large, sending a spacecraft to it is a literal shot in the dark, I think. Absolutely. Um, and there have actually been sample return missions from a comet before. Um, so I looked this one up. It was a spacecraft called Stardust, and it returned samples from the coma of a comet, which is the, the kind of envelope around a coma that forms when a comet gets very close to the sun. So the ice on its surface sublimates away, and you get this kind of halo of material around it. They use something very different then to the probe uh, that's studying the asteroid in this case, what they used was an aerogel and they they basically allowed the dust and material to go through the aerogel, which then trapped that material and then brought it back to the Earth. It is really uh, kind of novel techniques and things we may not necessarily think of, but do the trick in space. Um, you've probably heard of the Rosetta Fide mission, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. Rosetta's a favourite in the office. It definitely is. And um, we've actually got a, an animated video on the Rosetta mission. So if anyone wants to check it out, just a, a quick three minute overview of that mission, you can find it on our Vimeo channel, which is vimeo.com forward slash Royal Observatory. And this was a space mission to a comet and had the first probe actually land on its surface. And that was Philae. Really fantastic and bold mission. There's also been lots of... Um, Kind of spacecraft sent to asteroids too. Again, lots of them have been flybys. We've sent a few to uh, some of the biggest asteroids in the asteroid belt, so places like Vesta and Ceres. Nice. But actually, there is another spacecraft that has brought back samples from an asteroid, and that is the Japanese Hayabusa spacecraft, um, which brought back samples from asteroid Itakawa in 2010. And that was the first successful asteroid sample return mission. But Hayabusa 2 is the Japanese spacecraft which very recently visited asteroid Ryugu and it collected dust from it and it's now bringing that sample back home. So that asteroid sample return is expected back this December. So it's not long until we've hopefully got even more asteroid samples back here. But let's bring ourselves back to OSIRIS-REx. You know for a fact, Bryony, that many space uh, kind of missions, exploration, um, they always have acronyms, right? Scientists can't get enough of them, or at least astronomers can't. I so, mean, uh, scientists of all, all colours can't get enough of them. I mean, yeah, you, you need to look only need to look at CERN and its various detectors to see it's not an astrophysicist only thing. 
Osiris Rex is just another one of those big acronyms, and it stands for Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, Regolith, Explorer. So no wonder they shortened it. Um, but its primary aim is to collect at least 60 grams of sample from the asteroid named Bennu, which is a near-Earth asteroid, and for most part, it's, it orbits between Venus and Mars, so it's pretty close to the Earth. Um, and the hope is it will bring that sample back to the Earth so we can analyze it here. You might be thinking, why this asteroid, right? There are billions of asteroids. This one is conveniently close. And actually, it's an asteroid that is thought to have formed in the first 10 million years of the solar system's history. That is exciting. So it makes it a very, very early piece of space rock from our solar system's history. Now, this story hit the headlines uh, in October because after a four year journey making its way to the asteroid and undergoing some dress rehearsals, which they have done with this spacecraft, it actually briefly landed down on the asteroid, collected samples from its surface before what scientists have called booping away. Um, <laughs> I was like, what is this booping? And I think it's another attempt of scientists' humor. It's the yeah. word they use to describe the act of the spacecraft firing its thrusters to back it away from the surface of the asteroid. So if you hear booping, that's what it means. I see. So the the, the asteroid, the uh, sorry, not the asteroid. The uh, the spacecraft has booped the snoot of the uh, the, the asteroid. I think you, you could put it that way. <laughs> What's crazy, I think, about this is that scientists were operating this procedure of landing the spacecraft on the asteroid to collect samples from over 300 million kilometers away from the Earth, where the time delay between signals is about 18 and a half minutes. Wow. And this intricate spacecraft did this procedure, uh, which lasted just 16 seconds. Wow. That. That's. That's a lot. That is very, very impressive engineering to be able to sort of overcome that, you know, knowing that delay and be able to sort of predict so far enough in advance that it doesn't matter that you're not going to get enough data until 18 minutes later. You need to trust that you have been able to program it well enough. It's so mind boggling, isn't it? That you something's happened, but you don't know it's happened until, you know, several minutes later. And um, now scientists hope that it has collected the desired 60 grams of material. And if it successfully makes um, that or brings that material home or with the returned plan being for September 2023. So we've still got a couple of years. If it does bring that material home, it will be the largest rock sample collected since the Apollo era. That is certainly exciting because they, they collected about a kilogram on one of them, didn't they? They definitely did. I, you know, different missions, I think, brought back different amounts, but this is no insignificant amount as such. Um, what's really nice about this, again, we've got another acronym, is <laughs> how it collected the samples. It's a mechanism which is called TAG-SAM. It sounds a bit like a child's game. <laughs> it stands for Touch and Go Sample Acquisition Mechanism which sort of sums up what it did because this device was sort of made up of a boom which is like a, a thick long pole and on the end of it was a ring shaped collector so this ring when it gets close to the surface gets pushed into the surface and at the same time nitrogen gas is expelled which kicks up small fragments of the rock on the comets uh, on the asteroid surface and then that's collected in the ring 
And the use of nitrogen gas, well, it's because nitrogen gas is very unreactive. So all of this got done in about 16 seconds. Touchdown, wow. ring on the surface, expel nitrogen gas, collect samples, and then away we go. Now, the spacecraft is about the size of a van. And from orbit of the asteroid, it took four and a half hours to descend down to the Nightingale crater on the north pole of the asteroid, which is where it collected the sample. And by the time it got to the surface, it slowed down enough that it was moving at just 10 centimeters a second. Wow, that is very slow for space. It really is, especially when you consider how fast spacecraft would have been moving previously. Yeah. Um, so the intricacy of landing in uh, the designated eight meter diameter target zone becomes even more impressive when you realize that the asteroid is just 490 meters across. Wow. It's tiny. Um, you know, it's, it's probably the size of, they've compared it to something just a bit larger than the Empire State Building, which yes, is a big building, but it's no way the size of a city or the size of a country or a planet. It's tiny. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it's, it's a bit like sort of you know, firing a, uh, you know, like hitting a tennis ball and trying to hit the Empire State Building from who knows how far away. Yeah, pretty difficult stuff. Um, and although we said that the 60 grams is the desired amount of material, the spacecraft is actually capable of collecting up to two kilograms. So Whoa. like to kind of the, the Apollo missions, um, its sensors initially indicated that the procedure had taken place successfully. But so scientists would have had to wait a few days to confirm just how much of the sample was collected. Um, and they have already actually planned a second attempt in January 2020 as a backup, just in case enough of a sample wasn't collected this time round. And it's set to make its way home in March 2021. So if they haven't got enough, they're going to try again in January. But then by March next year, it's coming home. One thing they need to do is work out how much of the sample they've collected, how much mass there was. And there's two ways to do this. So one thing they're going to be doing is photographing the ring collector to see how much is in there. That'll give them an estimate. Um, but the other way, which I think is quite clever, is they would um, outstretch the arm with the ring collector on it. And then they would deliberately cause the spacecraft to spin. And what this does is when you look at the amount of force it takes the spacecraft to spin it with that arm outstretched compared to when it does it when it's got the mass sample in it, there will be a difference. It will take a bit more force or a bit more torque to spin it with that extra mass collected. And by that difference, they can work out how much uh, material has actually been collected. Is that so, really is ingenious. It is genius, isn't it? It's, it's such a simple... Um, kind of physical process. Newtonian, Newtonian mechanics, we've known about this since the you know 17th century and yet we're using it yet or yeah. you know hundreds of millions of kilometers away out in space. Um, so we'll eagerly be awaiting the samples returned from this asteroid when it heads back or gets back to the Earth hopefully in 2023. But we've also, like I mentioned, got the Hayabusa 2 sample returning this December. Um, and labs on Earth can carry out much more higher powered analysis of their physical and chemical characteristics, which is why we really want to bring those samples back home. The last little point, which I thought was quite interesting, is that we might think that when the samples are brought back, we would just open them up and do all sorts of analysis with them. But actually, they're analysed in such small amounts that even with the Apollo samples, which were collected 50 odd years ago, there's still some unopened samples. Wow. And, you know, the reason for that is that 
perhaps 50 years from now, we will have better technology, better techniques to study those samples than we do today. And we want to make sure that we don't just use up all of that space sample that we've collected in order to work out things in the future that might, we might not be able to do now. So lots to look forward to, uh, lots of sample, exciting sample returns. Um, and these are basically the building blocks of planets asteroids are these space rocks so like we mentioned they're time capsules and hopefully by studying these samples we're going to be able to learn a bit more about the how the sun planets came into existence and involved and this will really help us delve a bit deeper into the science and the process of how our solar system has changed so that's the story I've picked for this month, Brining. I think it's been one that has been picked up by lots of people uh, and picked a bit of an interest in lots of people's astronomy kind of news. But I know you've equally got a lovely story for us. So hit us with it. The competition is on. Right. Well, I mean, I do think that uh, I, I may have cheated a bit because uh, I decided to discuss uh, the winners of the uh, 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics. So I think that, you know, a sort of bit, bit unfair there, of course, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize in Physics is always going to be something very, very exciting. Um, although, it's interesting, while the winners were announced um, in October, on the 6th of October, uh, they're actually winning it for work that they did, uh, you know, in one case, back in 1965. It really, it really is crazy. So I thought, I thought I'd just sort of start with a bit of a history of sort of the Nobel Prizes, because I, I didn't really know much about them when I first sort of decided to you know, discuss this topic. And I thought maybe it's worth sort of just discussing it um, quickly. So um, they are awarded um, yearly, but they don't have to be awarded yearly. Um, if the Nobel Committee decides that there is no one uh, who deserves the award that year, then that amount can be placed on the, uh, the prize can be placed on hold and it can be awarded in the following year. Uh, so it came from uh, sort of originally the, this man called Alfred Nobel, who was a, a Swedish sort of industrialist, uh, who I think this is my personal favorite claim to fame. He's the inventor of dynamite. Wow. I know, right? Uh, so yeah, when he died, he had a massive fortune. It was worth about 159 million um, pounds in today's money. Um, and so he left that and he said that, you know, this chunk of my fortune um, should be uh, you know, left to provide um, prize money for um, people who, in the this committee's opinion, have uh, sort of given the the most uh, the most value to their prospective fields. Because uh, there are five Nobel prizes: there's a prize in physics, uh, which he actually mentioned first in his will. So I'm you know a little, little up for us. Uh, there's a Nobel prize in chemistry, literature, medicine, and peace. Now, there is also an economics prize. However, it is not actually an official Nobel Prize. It's actually um, uh, created by uh, the uh, Swedish bank, Sverige Riksbank. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. And that's only been um, sort of in uh, commission since 1969. So yes, there is the economics prize, but it's not necessarily, uh, it's not actually a proper Nobel. Still, what a really nice gesture from this man in his will to... Yeah, to highlight and you know praise the people who make big contributions to different fields of study. Well, that that is exactly, it. and it's it's nice that it's sort of it's it's not just recognizing uh, you know the sort of universities or that, but it is recognizing people. And while that does sometimes draw some fire, there's some criticism about you know the fact that because it you know it is awarded to a maximum of three people and they all have to be uh, alive at the time of being. Uh, you know, the prize being announced, um, it does very much limit 
who who can get it you know with science being such a collaborative endeavor now you have these massive teams working on things there are some people who are saying well you know do the nobel prizes really you know reflect that but at the end of the day it is nice to have something that is uh you know recognizing the scientists and their contributions uh so sort of a little history on the nobels but this year's Nobel Prize is, of course, something in astrophysics. Uh, now, the Nobel Prize this year was split between two people. Sorry, not two people, three people, uh, with half of it being given to Roger Penrose uh, for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. And then the other half was then split between um, Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Ghez uh, for the discovery of a supermassive compact object at the center of our galaxy. Now, these are very, very short sentences trying to explain what they actually discovered and what they actually did. <laughs> I think it's worth just sort of unpacking what these uh, actually mean. Now, Roger Penrose was awarded the prize for something he did, sort of a theory, a theory prediction, while um, Genzel and Gez, um, they won it you know, for their um, experimental and observational work, uh, which, is, which is nice. It's nice to sort of have that you know, both the theory and the experimental recognised. It really does go hand in hand, doesn't it? Where science is about creating theories and trying to make sense of things, but of course we need the observations and the evidence to back them up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, let's just sort of give a little bit of a background um, to sort of Penrose's uh, stuff first of all. So his was so for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. Now. Black holes have been theorized for a very long time. In fact, it was only like a few months after Einstein actually published his general theory of relativity um, that uh, Schwarzschild, uh, he solved Einstein's, um, he solved the equations and came up with um, a metric that you know, um, suggested that maybe you could have something that seems to break down when you, uh, you know, once something got to a certain weight, um, inside, sorry, a certain mass inside a certain radius, strange things started to happen to the mathematics. The mathematics just completely breaks down. Um, for those of you who have uh, any knowledge in like differential geometry or anything like that, I'd go look up the equations. It's actually really fascinating um, seeing just how they break. But basically, they break down, and it's thought, okay, well, what, like, what about, you know, what is, what does that mean? Like, what, like, physically, what does this mean? And people weren't really sure physically what it could mean. Because you see, uh, the Schwarzschild solution requires uh, spherical symmetry. And spherical symmetry is lovely uh, in mathematics and you know, in physics we very, very often assume it, but it is not really accurate. Uh, yeah, a broad spherical symmetry certainly is, but when you're talking about things the size of planets, stars, galaxies, spherical symmetry is not accurate. It's not a good assumption to make. And so it was thought for a very long time that actually uh, black holes, you know, this whole idea of, you know, something that seemingly at the center just like completely broke down and nothing could possibly, you know, exist. And you know, this uh, strange idea of a singularity point of infinite density and uh, bizarre things happening at a strange time. But it was just, it was just a consequence of the handy mathematics we were doing. Uh, of course, people tried to solve um, the uh, equations of general relativity without assuming spherical symmetry. But it gets really difficult. Uh, in fact, Kerr, um, can't remember his first name, but he came up with the idea, um, he solved them in the case of a rotating black hole, um, which does require a lot of other symmetries. <laughs> so again, you have this notion of all of these symmetries coming in. And in nature, while symmetries are very common, you can't 
assume them. And anything that comes about because of symmetries is a bit questionable. You really, you really want to look for more evidence, more sort of strong evidence than that. So this is the kind of the state of uh, what we were looking at um, in the sort of 1960s. And as well as that, no one sort of proved that even you could even form something of this size. But then uh, it seemed that there was some observational evidence that came out that suggested actually we have found things that seem to be about this size and about this density. So hang on, what is this? Like how, you know, we thought that we were, that the only reason that this strange object existed was because of spherical or other symmetries. You know, what, like, how do we possibly explain this strange, incredibly dense object that is, you know, is not emitting light? How do, how do we explain this? Uh, so Roger Penrose, complete genius, um, he used a completely different area um, of mathematics. He, uh, he worked in topology a lot as well, which is uh, it's the same sort of mathematics that you get jokes like, you know, what's the difference between a donut and a coffee cup? Nothing. It's a, it's, it's a funny joke if you've studied topology, I promise. Um, uh, but uh, basically he just did away with this idea of symmetries um, and you know, topology has some other sort of assumptions, but they're a lot, they're a lot more robust, hence the word, you know, robust prediction. Um, they're like more mathematically robust. They stand up to um, perturbation a lot, a lot, a lot more than sort of your, uh, the other symmetries that were used before that. So basically the idea that, uh, that Roger Penrose used was this idea of something called a trapped surface. Now, the idea of this trapped surface is that basically it is exactly what it says. Everything that is on this surface points inwards, like the, the arrow of time, you might have heard of that. It's sort of uh, a way of, you know, sort of representing um, events uh, and uh, what events may happen, what could happen um, because like as a consequence of other things. Uh, basically what happens is that once you once you are inside this trapped surface or sort of on the trapped surface everything everything about you know, every, every way you could go forward in time points inwards uh, now to explain that in a different way um would take about a course in general relativity so i'm not even going to try but <laughs> basically what it meant is that in order for you to get away from the trapped surface to get you know to leave the trapped surface to get not go into the center that's as difficult as going backwards in time. And as we said at the beginning, uh, no one's invented a time machine just yet. Uh, so that was, that was Roger Penrose's sort of great idea is that everything inside this trapped surface, which is the event horizon of a black hole, this point of no return, mathematically um, from these sort of topological and various other branches of mathematics that no one can pronounce uh, sort of arguments, uh, you can prove uh, against very robust perturbations that once you are here, you cannot go anywhere but inwards. Um, if you've heard of the concept of light cones, um, which is sort of the idea, which is uh, another way of representing uh, possible um, locations things can travel um, in a certain length of time. Um, so another way of visualizing the trapped surface uh, is this thing called light cones. Uh, so light cones, if you've heard of them, they're, they're another way of visualizing uh, sort of possible future events and what something can do in the future, sort of what future points are available for it to travel to. Um, and so uh, once you cross a trapped surface, once you hit a trapped surface, then your light cone points inwards. There is no possible way for you to go anywhere but in. Uh, and this was just amazing. This is like mind blowing stuff because this was the first time anyone had robustly shown 
without these symmetries, without all of this very sort of clever maths, like sort of tricky maths that, no, 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 even if you use this very, very rigorous metric, no, you actually end up with a black hole with this point of no return, and more importantly, from a singularity. So Penrose's um, uh, sort of theorem also showed that a singularity is an inevitable consequence of these trapped surfaces, because before this, singularities were thought of as just this sort of like, oh yeah, whatever, it's not, it's not real, it's just symmetries, we'll, we'll figure that out when we actually get there. And then Penrose gets there and is like, no, 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 we, you end up with a singularity, this bizarre point where space and time are just completely, I don't even know what, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's absolutely beyond even our current understanding of maths um, and physics. It so, does take someone very, you know, with a very different mind to kind of move away from the norm and what lots of people are thinking, this idea of symmetries that you're talking about and go off on a completely different tangent. And then the consequences of that are that it gives you the answers that you were sort of being directed to anyway. Um, well, that's exactly it. That is, that is one of the things I, and you know, I've read a few, um, a few sort of articles from people who we work in, work in the field now. Um, and they, you know, I've, I've never worked in general relativity, so I really don't know very much about it, but they're all, you know, everyone, um, who works in it is saying sort of, this is, it really is a truly revolutionary solution. It really did bring general relativity out from this sort of backwater of like, obscure mathematics into this thing that actually comes up with testable predictions. Because of course, like you know, we've been saying, it's all about you need to be able to test your predictions. And that's like the really great thing about Penrose's work is while it seems very sort of strange and like a bit like airy fairy, very mathematical, but it produces testable predictions when you apply it to this and all sorts of other things. So it, it really is, um, it's, it's Nobel Prize worthy in my humble opinion. <laughs> you know, I, I agree with the Nobel Prize committee. <laughs> <laughs> so that was part one, right? The half of the Nobel Prize. Yes. And the, the other half. Now this one won't, won't take quite so long to explain because it's um it's a bit it's a bit simple. Now um uh, Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Gez they actually independently lead research groups uh, which were taking observations of the supermassive black hole slash compact object at the center of our galaxy. Now, basically what these two groups have done is they have independently verified the mass of the, uh, this, you know, this compact object at the center of um, our Milky Way galaxy by mapping um, the, uh, the orbits of various stars around it. So in fact, there is one star which was called S2 by Genzel and S02 by Gezer's group, which I quite like, S2 and S02. <laughs> um, uh, um, that it has a period of only, of only 16 years. So it actually only takes 16 years to complete one orbit. So they've actually mapped out this star's complete orbit around uh, the supermassive black hole, which is amazing uh, that, that they were able to do that. You know, they have managed to really burrow really deep down into the intricacies and technicalities of you know, what you need to observe something. And then they have you know, pioneered techniques to uh, reduce noise um, and increase resolution, you know, even down to like the, the literal sort of diffraction limit, the point at which uh, the interference of the light with your aperture and your, your telescope means that you can't get any better. It you know, just proves as well, doesn't it, that you know, you're talking about this star they observed and they mapped its entire orbit of 16 years. Exactly. We're talking about a galaxy here with a supermassive black hole at the center and a star taking just 16 years to orbit the center of our galaxy. 
that tells us that star is incredibly close to the center of our galaxy and therefore no doubt surrounded by so many other stars as well. Um, yeah, so, so many. I think there were about 16 stars that they were tracking um, that, like, between them mostly in total, but there was that, that, ver that one that really did have uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful data that they published, honestly. Uh, they managed to get such, such nice observations because of their dedication to you know, improving their telescope little bit by little bit and every little bit you know, got them a little bit more of an improvement and so then they could sort of use that to feed off everything else uh, to get these images um, this data that showed that hey this thing that's at the center it you know, it it is what you what we think it is you know these sort of casual observations that we've seen well actually these casual observations are entirely right we you know you predict that it should be here. Well, guess what? This is exactly where, based on the orbits of these stars really close to it, that's where it is. Um, and it's, you know, this sort of stuff takes years. So as, you know, as we said, they, they actually tracked the full orbit of one star. Uh, it's called S2 by Genzel and SO2 by uh, Gezer's group, which I quite like. Um, but yeah, it, took, it takes 16 years to complete one orbit. And so they have the entire orbit of this star, which is amazing. Like the dedication it takes to get that is, you know, com so commendable, beyond commendable. Um, and I think it's really exciting that this sort of, uh, th this sort of experimentation is being recognized as well. What a great news story, Brian. And it's really nice sometimes to, to bring up the work that has been done years ago, but is only just being credited now. Well, that, that is, that is sadly, I mean, that is sadly it with the, with the Nobel prizes is, you know, it has to have a sort of demonstrated contribution to, to humanity, to something. And so that does, uh, particularly with physics end up, you get, a lot of people get awarded the prizes uh, for work, particularly the theorists, they get awarded prizes, the prizes for work they've done, you know, decades and decades ago. Well, I think our viewers or our listeners are going to have uh, two very tough stories to choose from. Uh, that does bring us towards the end of our podcast. But before we do go, remember, we're going to put our stories to the vote on Twitter at the start of the month. So please do uh, join us there. Vote for your favorite story. If you don't follow us, we are at ROG Astronomers. Uh, so make sure you cast your votes there. We always like to go back and have a, a quick check up on the polls from the last month. So last month, the story that I covered was about um, the idea of phosphine on Venus and the potential for life there. And the question we posed is um, that phosphine on Venus could indicate the presence of life. And if that life was there, what was the cause of it? Where did it come from? Now, about 20% voted from, it maybe came from the earth, from an impact. Uh, and that flung material to Venus. Roughly another 20% think that maybe that life on Venus is just non-carbon based life. So it's nothing like we have here on the earth. But the clear winner with 60 odd percent is that that life formed on Venus in the past when it was more habitable and perhaps has adapted as Venus has evolved and changed through its life. Lovely to know what your thoughts on that were. And again, remember to vote on our poll for this month. We're going to start it off, Bryony. I wonder which one of us is going to come out on top. I also want to take this chance uh, to quickly mention that if anyone is interested, we also have our Night Sky Highlights blog. You'll find images and also stargazing tips to go along with the highlights we mentioned in the Cosmic Diaries section at the start of the podcast. If you want to find it, head to our website, rmg.co.uk, and search for Night Sky Highlights there. 
That does bring us to the end of our podcast for this month. I hope you all keep very well and we'll see you next month for more from Look Up. Thank you.